Probably the best way to explain this episode of Rip Corp is to play the following tape of a folk song written and performed by a guy named Rob Black. They came from New York City down that two-lane mountain road To make one West Virginia their four-wheelers in tow They thought for the weekend they'd just be good old boys In the land of the feudin' of the Hatfields and McCoys so I met Rob in Matewan, West Virginia, at the West Virginia Mine Wars Museum. Well, actually, we, meaning uh, our executive producer, Jason Oberholzer, and one of our audio engineers, Michael Simonelli, actually met him when we were hanging out in the Mine Wars Museum lobby. Rob kind of just walked into the museum with his wife, grandkids, and a guitar, and just kind of casually busted it out to play some old Union folk songs. The Mine Wars Museum is the kind of place where that thing can just happen, apparently. The song's currently unfinished, so we only got the first verse on tape. It's about the Battle of Matewan, also known as the Matewan Massacre, which took place on May 19, 1920. It's a significant part of the history of the West Virginia Mine Wars. The shootout claimed 10 lives, three residents of the Matewan area, including the town's mayor, Cabell Testerman, and seven employees of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, a private security firm that, among other things, worked for coal operators throughout West Virginia. That day in Matewan lives in infamy in both Appalachian and American labor history, as do the miners of Mingo County, commemorated in labor folk songs. You can tell them in the country, tell them in the town, the miners down in Mingo laid their shovels down, we won't pull another pillow out another ton, or lift another finger till the union we have won. Baldwin Feltz lives in infamy too, although I only found one union song that went out of its way to name drop them. The union forever, hurrah, boys, hurrah. Down with the Baldwins and up with the law. For we're coming, Colorado, we're coming all the way. But Baldwin Feltz doesn't really live on in the public record. Which is weird, because for miners and organizers trying to build power in West Virginia coal fields, Baldwin Feltz was synonymous with the enemy. They were the hired guns who enforced the will of coal companies, evicted miners from company-owned houses, guarded company property, and sometimes deployed spies to go undercover and ferret out union men. The closest Baldwin Feltz really got to popular culture representation was in the 1987 indie film Matewan, a fictionalized version of the Battle of Matewan story featuring some future famous actors like David Strathairn, James Earl Jones, and Chris Cooper in his film debut. Here's a clip of one scene with the Baldwin Feltz agents to give you a taste of how they're portrayed in the movie. Well, I'm gonna stay close to you tonight, preacher boy. And you let one wrong word fly. And I'm going to put one in your skull. And I'll do the same for your pretty mama. You know I ain't lying, don't you, boy? Yes, sir. So we're left mostly with semi-obscure references and films and songs for Baldwin Feltz because labor historians tend to focus their research on workers building labor power more than the guns for hire standing in their way, which maybe explains some of the exaggeration and inaccuracies that can come up. For instance, in Rob Black's song, uh, the Baldwin Feltz guys didn't come down from New York to Matewan. They came up from Bluefield, West Virginia, a town about two hours away. 
They weren't thugs brought in from outside to enforce law and order. The Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency was a homegrown Appalachian outfit. One of its founders was once referred to as the Pinkerton of the South. Unlike some other infamous union-busting private firms like the Pinkertons, there's not a ton of scholarship focused on Baldwin-Feltz. This is partly because it's hard to do history without documents, and the company destroyed most of their official records after closing up shop in 1937. In this episode of Ripcorp, we're going to try to piece together some of the history of Baldwin Feltz and their legacy, and how both reverberate in present-day conversations about capitalism, policing, racism, and xenophobia in the United States. In some ways, this is an episode about some incredibly specific West Virginia history and the intensity with which people in West Virginia continue to hold on to and live with that history. But that history reverberates, not just in museums and in songs, but in the way that state-sanctioned violence tends to emphasize protecting property over people and the way that organized labor is treated as a threat to property and civil order. So the first question I found myself asking when I started learning about Baldwin Feltz was, how, how is this even a job? Like, who had the bright idea to be corporate cops? And why are all these guys who are clearly just mercenaries being called private detectives? Aren't detectives, like, hard-boiled guys in noir movies whose trouble all starts with a dame? You know, in the media where I learned American history, like in textbooks or PBS documentaries or the, the musical Newsies, strikebreakers are sort of just always part of the story. It, it hadn't really occurred to me before to question their origins, but they're actually kind of an anomaly. And I, I guess I would like to emphasize, too, how unique this kind of use is globally. You know, we can look at other countries, and uh, there was no such agency that the, where the government looked the way. You had a lot of terrible policing and uh, the use of violence by monarchs and governments in other countries against workers, no doubt about it. But for a government to cede that kind of policing to a private group was quite unusual. Rosemary Foyer is a professor of history at Northern Illinois University and co-author of Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organized to Defeat Union Activism. And when we talked to her, she emphasized that companies like Baldwin Feltz in their time were a uniquely American product. There's no such thing like this in England, Australia, Germany. There's, you know, they have, though, let me be very clear, the police are doing it. So why didn't regular cops take on strike-breaking in America the way they did in Europe? One reason might be that back in the day, some American cops were occasionally inclined to side with workers over bosses. But maybe more importantly, in the period after the American Civil War, the entire concept of the police in the United States was still kind of in flux. There were local and county-level sheriffs and slave patrols and state-level militias, which would eventually formalize into the police, but it wasn't until after the Spanish-American War in 1898 that the idea of the National Guard as we know it officially came into being. 
state police forces only really start to happen after World War I. Private detectives kind of filled the gap before American state-level policing became more formalized. They were technically mercenaries, like bounty hunters, basically. But they did do some actual, like, you know, detecting, you know, sometimes in cases that crossed state or county lines that were outside of a local cop's jurisdiction. And in West Virginia, this could mean things like hunting down moonshiners or joining in manhunts for alleged criminals. William Gibbony Baldwin was one such detector. Sometime in the 1880s, Baldwin began working for West Virginia's Eureka Detective Agency. When Eureka's founder passed away, Baldwin continued working for one of its biggest clients, the Norfolk and Western Railroad. The NNW Railroad helped lay the foundation for West Virginia's coal industry by building out transport networks to get that coal out of remote reaches of Appalachia and into factories and mills and stuff. Providing security services to the NNW gave Baldwin the foundation to start his own firm, initially called the Baldwin Detective Agency. So what did Baldwin's work for the NNW look like in practice? Well, as with a lot of questions in this episode, it kind of depends on who you ask. John Velke is the great-grand-nephew of William Baldwin. He wrote and self-published the book The True Story of the Baldwin-Felds Detective Agency, and he owns a house in Bluefield, West Virginia, which at one time was used by Baldwin-Felds for detective work. His version of Baldwin-Felds' early history emphasizes things like their hunting down members of the infamous Allen clan and other unsavory characters. They weren't just detectives in the coal fields. They were detectives that basically caught murderers and rapists and armed robbers and, you know, every crime that you can imagine from that period of time, they were enforcing and or they were investigating and bringing people to justice. So from Velke's telling, Baldwin Feltz hunted down the worst of the worst and maintained a tenuous peace in a tempestuous era. But it's important to remember what exactly made this time so tempestuous. This was a period of massive demographic transformation in West Virginia and Virginia. Between 1880 and 1900, the black population in West Virginia grew a lot as the railroad and coal companies recruited families from the South for their growing labor needs. And tensions between the white population and the growing black population were high because the majority of that black population had until very recently been considered property. Remember, this is only some 30 years out from the Civil War, barely another generation. William Baldwin grew up during Reconstruction. His dad was a Confederate general. Dr. Bob Hutton is a professor of history and Appalachian studies at Glenville State University. And he's pretty much the guy doing academic research into Baldwin Feltz these days. He spent a lot of time looking at local newspaper coverage of Baldwin Feltz's exploits from that time, particularly their work in Virginia and West Virginia. And he sees a disconcerting pattern to a lot of the stories. Around that time, what do you see a tremendous amount of? You, you read over and over again in Richmond and Roanoke, Virginia newspapers about Baldwin Feltz agents shooting a Negro. Uh, it's mentioned often, very offhandedly. And when, when, they're, when they're not shooting someone, 
they're blaming them for randomly wrecking some railroad tracks, which it, it, it's so random. You have to have kind of wonder, you know, how often was there any validity for this crime? Well, probably not very often because the the myth of the African American male train wrecker, very common thing throughout the South in the 1890s, it, it served a very special purpose for the railroad companies because it uh, it prevented liability issues for them. Conveniently finding black men to arrest for damage to railroad property also reinforced white political power by disenfranchising a lot of black men of their right to vote. Baldwin also was involved in some investigations that ended in, or nearly ended, in lynchings. In at least two cases, Baldwin protected black men from lynch mobs, but only so Baldwin could deliver them to the state for trial and execution— So, really, the nicest thing we can say looking at William Baldwin's role in those stories is that he preferred to see the state murder black people than a mob do it. Hutton explained that the general idea for an agency like Baldwin Feltz was that their work for the railroads was also bringing order to all of these new towns that were being formed along the north and western banks of Virginia and West Virginia. And... Unsurprisingly, order typically meant and involved the mandating and enforcing of some form of white supremacy. All of this to say, another answer to the what did Baldwin's work for the NNW look like question is that they maintained a white industrialist status quo under the auspices of bringing order to the uncivilized hinterlands of post-Reconstruction Virginia. By 1910, Baldwin's longtime employee, Thomas Feltz, was a partner in the agency, and with this change came a shift toward what was then called the mine guard system. Baldwin Feltz was apparently very, very good at this work, and they did it for a lot of coal companies, to the point that by the 19-teens, a lot of West Virginia miners colloquially referred to all mine security as Baldwin men and used the term Baldwin system interchangeably with mine guard system. John Velke, that guy related to William Baldwin, takes a lot of issue with this. There were lots of detective agencies operating, and what the United Mine Workers of America did successfully is they took this broad brush and applied it to Baldwin Feltz. And so anything that happened, you didn't hear it was a Burns detective, or it was a Pinkerton detective, or it was a Eureka detective. It was all Baldwin. And so they called them the Baldwin thugs. A lot of our interview with Belkey, which, by the way, we did on the porch of the old Baldwin house in Bluefield that he owns, was about this issue and about litigating specific historical incidents to prove that Baldwin Feltz was or wasn't implicated in them. A lot of this historical record is murky. Again, Baldwin Feltz destroyed their official records when they closed up shop, and there were some other detective agencies in the mine guard game. But one thing that's not murky, not even a little bit, is how the mine guard system reinforced some pretty bad labor conditions in West Virginia coal mines. A lot of miners signed up to go to World War I from West Virginia because you had a higher life expectancy, right, if you did, you know. So you were more likely to die underground working in the mines than you were fighting World War I in Europe, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And this is, you know, these are the kinds of conditions that miners are organizing against. This is Kenzie Newwalker, 
She's the director of the West Virginia Mine War Museum and comes from three generations of West Virginia coal miners. Conditions in coal mines were pretty rough well before World War I, of course. Coal mining's dangerous. Methane gas, a byproduct of coal, can build up in underground mines and cause explosions. And in West Virginia, workplace safety regulations, not to mention corporate liability, weren't really a thing. And miners were paid per ton of coal instead of an hourly wage, which often meant they were incentivized to cut corners and overwork themselves to earn more money. Between 1890 and 1912, West Virginia had the highest minor death rates in the country. Appalachia's coal mines were also in pretty rural areas, connected by a small number of switchback mountain roads and the railroads. This meant most mining towns were company towns. The company built and ran the local general stores where they could set exorbitant prices for necessities as the only game in town, and minor housing, which meant workers' pay went back to the company as rent. This would often put miners into a debt cycle of sometimes owing the company more money than they actually made working for the company. You know, like in that folk song about owing your soul to the company store. If you were a miner and you didn't like this and wanted to stage a protest, well, sometimes even the roads in these towns weren't public space, but company property. Coal operators also took advantage of and sought to exacerbate racial tensions in the demographically shifting West Virginia by recruiting Hungarian and Italian immigrants and migrating black Southerners, and then actively segregating company housing. One coal operator said that it's good to have a judicious mixture in the coal camps because when you have people from different backgrounds, different races, different religions, they're less likely to organize. Another tactic to, pun not intended, undermine organizing was having those aforementioned mine guards spy on and intimidate workers. We can definitively say that Baldwin Feltz engaged in spying, partly because, surprise, some of the company papers weren't destroyed. In 1990, a cache of documents belonging to Thomas Feltz was discovered in West Virginia and donated to the Eastern Regional Coal Archives in Bluefield. Almost all of the documents are related to the mine wars. There is a fair amount of correspondence between Feltz and unnamed agents referred to only by numbers, typically sharing town gossip or indications of whether specific men are pro or anti-union. There's even one where a guy only listed as number 19 notes that he had spent the night previously guarding Mother Jones, the famous labor organizer, before an event. These spies got in deep. We don't know who number 19 was, but we do know a little bit about the kind of people who worked for Baldwin Feltz. Their employee roster included a lot of people from the Appalachian middle class, men with college educations, and a fair number of William Baldwin and Thomas Feltz's friends and relatives. You also had people who were really good at violence. A reminder. America in the early 20th century didn't just do a lot of labor movement violence, but also hella imperialism. One of Baldwin Feltz's more infamous employees, Ernest Gajot, came to the company after fighting in the Spanish-American War and being part of the United States' violent occupation of the Philippines. You also have to understand the employment dynamics of a business like Baldwin Feltz. It's not like they always just had hundreds of guys on payroll waiting for a strike. When major strikes happened and coal companies wanted hundreds of mine guards at a time, 
Baldwin Phelps basically would hire a bunch of short-term contractors. So while the full-time roster at Baldwin Phelps might have been vetted and seem on the up and up, for short-term things, Baldwin Phelps could hire all sorts of people, convicts, soldiers, generally bad dudes, and then easily disavow them if they needed to. This partly explains the they came down from New York lyric we heard up top from Rob Black. It just happens that it made one the men involved were local. Okay, so we've got coal companies and railroads, big industry, and the private security and spies and maybe imperialism goons who work for them against organizers from the United Mine Workers of America, the UMWA, and miners, so poor white West Virginians, European immigrants who kind of weren't considered white people yet, and black migrants coming from the Jim Crow South. This is the lineup in play for the West Virginia Mine Wars, which are called wars in part because there is one more important player who gets into the fray here, the state. the eventual participation of National Guard troops and the Army later on, we might just call the West Virginia Mine Wars the West Virginia Very Bad Strikes. The first of these very bad strikes started in April 1912, and it's known as the Paint Creek Cabin Creek Strike. Two mines, one union, one wildcat. This strike went on for a little over a year, with the National Guard and martial law imposed and lifted and imposed again on the regular. Both miners and Baldwin Feltz agents racked up pretty high body counts over the course of this strike. Though it should be noted that the coal company side had decidedly more money and far more advanced tech. One of the more infamous incidents of this strike took place in February 1913, when a Paint Creek coal operator, the Kanawha County Sheriff, and some railroad and mine guards took a train car armored with machine guns to the edge of a striker's tent colony and proceeded to shoot up the camp. Amazingly, only one person was killed, but several were wounded. The Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike died down around May 1913 with some victories for the coal miners, but by then Baldwin Feltz was sending men out to coal fields in Southern Colorado where a new strike was underway. The Colorado Coalfield War isn't directly related to the West Virginia Mine Wars, but it's important to mention them here, mainly because Tom Feltz's brother, Albert Feltz, was put in charge of operations there, and he's going to be important to this story later. In Colorado, Feltz created what miners would later nickname the Death Special, which was an armored car mounted with machine guns. It's unclear how much the machine gun car was actually used or how much it was meant to just sort of intimidate, but I feel like the fact that machine guns or the threat of them were considered necessary at all to mediate labor disputes says a lot about early 20th century mining conflicts, and maybe a little bit about how excited people were about machine guns. 
World War I brought a brief respite to coal mine conflicts in the United States. The industry was effectively nationalized to support the war effort. Mine guards like Baldwin Feltz, meanwhile, apparently kept busy trying to ferret out German spies in the United States. But the end of World War I returned miners to a status quo, except kind of worse because not only were they once again subject to mine guard intimidation and shitty conditions, there was a recession and, topical, a flu pandemic. The period also saw an increased consolidation of corporate control over mines, and thanks to the 1917 Russian Revolution, lots of red baiting used against unions. So these were the high-level conditions in January 1920 when UMWA leadership announced a campaign to unionize miners in southwest Virginia, home to Mingo County and Matewan. Pointedly, this announcement was made in Bluefield, home to Baldwin Feltz's West Virginia headquarters. While the red baiting and economic situation may have made this seem poorly timed, there were a few factors in their favor. First, in 1919, the federal government had commissioned a national study on labor conditions in coal mines, which recommended wage increases for miners. Wage increases that non-union mines never saw and which non-union miners were understandably mad about. Second, 1920 was an election year in West Virginia, and a particularly contentious year for West Virginia's Republican Party, who, lest we forget, were at one time very pro-union. Mingo County was historically a swing district, and there was some hope that organizing workers there might improve turnout for a more progressive pro-union gubernatorial candidate. Finally, while Southwest Virginia had been notoriously hard to organize for years, UMWA had some important allies in Mingo County, specifically the county sheriff, G.T. Blankenship, who, unlike some other infamous West Virginia county sheriffs, hadn't been bought off by coal companies. They also had allies in Matewan, which became a central hub for a lot of organizing efforts since the town's chief of police, Sid Hatfield, and the mayor, Cabell Testerman, supported the unionizing efforts. Which maybe explains why four months into that UMWA organizing campaign, the first unionized mine in Mingo County voted to become a union in a Matewan church. That first union vote numbered about 500 people, of whom between 275 and 300 voted to join the union. Two weeks later, 3,000 miners showed up to a union meeting in Matewan. Miners were emboldened in part by the fact that the week before, G.T. Blinkenship had arrested Albert Feltz for illegally evicting striking miners from company housing. I told you he'd be back. Albert was, of course, able to post bail, and he returned to Maidwan on that fateful morning of May 19th, a day that would come to, well, live in infamy. Eleven Baldwin Feltz agents came with him, including another Feltz brother, Lee. The Stone Mountain Coal Company had hired Baldwin Feltz to evict some newly unionized striking miners from their company housing. Blankenship denied Feltz's request for help processing the evictions, but Feltz was able to get authorization from a different county official. Sid Hatfield and Cabell Testerman tried to intervene on the evictions as well, but to no avail. Suspecting that miners might be inclined to take matters into their own hands with the agents, Testerman contacted a local miner and asked for, quote, reliable men to patrol the town. 
By 3 p.m. that day, the evictions had been completed and armed men were patrolling the streets of Maidwan. There are conflicting reports on whether the evictions went off peacefully or not, but tensions were decidedly running high. The local elementary school sent children home early, sensing that Maitwan was a powder keg that day. Shortly after 4 p.m., Hatfield and Testerman approached Albert Feltz as he and the agents waited for their return train to Bluefield. Hatfield threatened to arrest Feltz. Feltz said he had a warrant for Hatfield's arrest. Testerman asked to see the warrant. Testerman declared the papers bogus, and then someone fired the first shot. And then all hell broke loose. Most of the Baldwin Feltz agents were unarmed. What large firearms they'd brought had been disassembled and packed for the trade right home. It was arguably an ambush. The agents were outnumbered and outgunned by local residents, some of whom may have seen that morning's evictions as a final straw in a long line of offenses from the Baldwin men, some of whom might have been evicted that very day. And well, Sid Hatfield was a notoriously good shot. When the dust settled, Albert and Lee Feltz were dead. So were Baldwin Feltz agents C.T. Higgins, A.U. Buhir, E.O. Powell, J.W. Ferguson, and C.B. Cunningham. Two miners, Bob Mullins and Patrick Tinsley, were also dead. Cabell Testerman's final words were reported to be, Why did they shoot me? I can't see why they shot me. At least ten others were reported wounded. Almost immediately, a struggle between pro- and anti-union actors to control the narrative commenced. To union supporters, the shootout was a righteous event, a long time coming. For years, Baldwin Feltz agents had stood on the necks of miners in the name of coal company profits. What happened in Maitwan wasn't just about the Stone Mountain evictions. It was the culmination of a long-simmering rage at a corrupt status quo— The agents had gotten what they deserved, union miners thought, and the men who stood their ground against Baldwin Feltz's tyranny were heroes, especially Sid Hatfield, the pro-union chief of police nicknamed Smiling Sid because of his several gold-capped teeth. The UMWA even made a short film about him to screen at rallies. He became an icon in the West Virginia labor movement. For anti-union folks, what happened in Maitwan very conveniently played into and could be used to perpetuate stereotypes about... West Virginians and their ignorance and proclivity to violence. Meanwhile, Tom Feltz, who had just lost his two younger brothers in Maidwan, set his agents and spies on the town to find out what happened and gather dirt on people involved, particularly on Sid Hatfield, which honestly wasn't that hard. Hatfield's lack of remorse was pretty plain. In a letter to Thomas Feltz on June 10, Baldwin Feltz spy C.E. Lively, who signed his letters as number nine, wrote, quote, I heard Sid Hatfield talking about the Maitwan affair. Someone asked him why they did not kill Mr. Cummins, to which he replied that he would certainly have done it if he had not run out of cartridges, end quote. Additionally, rumors spread that not only did Sid Hatfield fire the first shot, but he was the one to kill Mayor Testerman, apparently because Hatfield was having an affair with the mayor's wife, Jessie. The fact Sid and Jessie got married 12 days after Testerman's death probably didn't help matters, though Jessie did claim that Testerman asked Sid to take care of her in the event of the mayor's death. Still, 
Hatfield and 22 other men were exonerated when there finally was a trial over the Maitwan affair in January 1921. But later that year, Hatfield was made to stand trial for conspiracy charges one county over in Welch, West Virginia. A conspiracy that we should note he was maybe drawn into by the Baldwin Felt Spy Lively, so technically maybe more entrapment than conspiracy. On the morning of August 1st, 1921, Sid Hatfield and his co-defendant, Ed Chambers, were assassinated on the steps of the McDowell County Courthouse in Welch by several Baldwin Feltzmen, including C.E. Lively and one of the agents who survived the Maidwan shootout. Four agents ultimately stood trial for the murders. All were acquitted. Hatfield's assassination is often credited as the catalyst for the uprising that came to be known as the Battle of Blair Mountain, in late August, thousands of coal miners fought corrupt police forces in the pocket of coal companies and, eventually, the United States Army. It's one of the only times that the United States military has sent aircraft to attack its own people. But it might be more accurate to say that Sid's death was the final straw. Between the shootout in Mate 1 in May 1920 and Sid Hatfield's death in August 1921, Mingo County had seen dozens of conflicts between striking miners, scabs, and mine guards, to the point that the state police and the federal military had been sent in on occasions. It had been an ugly, exhausting fight. And let's not forget, a fair number of these miners had fought in World War I, so these were people who'd been in their fair share of ugly and exhausting fights, supposedly in the name of American freedom, only to end up in abysmal working conditions. A lot of miners probably felt like they had nothing left to lose. And to be clear, they did lose. There is no official count of how many died at Blair Mountain. Some estimates range from 50 to 100 miners and 10 to 30 people on the government side, but that doesn't account for other casualties. 985 miners and organizers were indicted for, among other crimes, treason against the state of West Virginia. So just to recap, coal operators, with the assistance of private security and both the state and federal government, obliterated a massive labor uprising. Southern West Virginia wouldn't be organized again until 1935, following the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, which created the National Labor Relations Board and guaranteed workers a right to organize. The National Labor Relations Act also forbids companies from um, interfering in workplace organizing, whether through force or espionage, which is to say that in 1935, a big part of Baldwin Feltz's business model was made illegal. But the agency was already winding down by then. Between 1921 and 1935, Baldwin Feltz had kept a pretty low profile with apparently less demand for strike-breaking services in West Virginia. They still did some work for the railroads, still rustled up outlaws now and then. And in 1931, there's some documentation of them um, rounding up vagrant hobos and selling them to a prison farm in North Carolina. But the agency's owners were getting old. By 1935, they weren't really involved in whatever day-to-day -day operations remained. William Baldwin died in 1936. Shortly after the passage of the National Labor Relations Act, 
A congressional committee was formed to investigate anti-union corporate espionage and intimidation. Chaired by Senator Robert La Follette Jr. in 1936 and 1937, the committee investigated and held hearings concerning the practices of many strike-breaking firms like Pinkerton and the Burns Agency. What remained of the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency apparently saw the writing on the wall and decided to close up shop before the La Follette Commission could subpoena the company. Baldwin-Feltz formally dissolved in May 1937. Thomas Feltz died five months later. It makes sense that Baldwin-Feltz faded into obscurity then. Its founders apparently preferred that to shining notoriety. But another big reason Baldwin-Feltz isn't that well-remembered is probably the fact that for a long time, the history of the West Virginia Mine Wars was actively suppressed by the state and federal government. Uh, first and foremost, it's, it's a history that I grew up with. I mean, I, I didn't learn about this in books at first. I learned about it from my family. It was an oral tradition that was passed down from generation to generation. That's what kept the history alive, was an oral tradition at first. This is Chuck Keeney. He's a professor of history at Southern West Virginia Community and Technical College and the great-grandson of Frank Keeney, a coal miner who got a start in organizing when he joined the Wildcat Strike at Payne and Cabin Creek in 1913, and a few years later became the president of District 17, UMWA's West Virginia operations. He was ultimately forced to resign in the aftermath of the Blair Mountain treason trials. It was striking to me as a young person how there was this war that was fought here in West Virginia. There's no monuments to this war. There are no memorials. There's no mentioning of this in major books. Until the 1970s, West Virginia's state history textbooks straight up omitted the mine wars like they didn't even happen. Blair Mountain was slated to be blown up by coal companies in 2011, and only after a lengthy grassroots campaign was it added to the National Register of Historic Places. The Mine Wars Museum, founded in 2015, emerged out of that organizing effort. Keeney was a founding board member of the Mine Wars Museum. And I just want to note, when we met him, he basically rolled up to the museum on a Saturday with a cardboard box full of archaeological finds related to the Paint Creek Cabin Creek strike, which he'd personally dug up, like, on a a weekend jaunt. Like, this guy really lives his history. And while his family history is very personally connected to the mine wars, he also sees that history, or really its erasure, as having a huge influence on contemporary West Virginia politics. Uh, and the, the fact that this type of history has been hidden from the general public and so many people don't know about it is why they have such a skewed worldview regarding coal, regarding its benefits, uh, not really understanding that uh, the coal industry is not what what brought a level of prosperity to the state, but it's actually what prevents the state from having prosperity. And it's because they don't understand that history and they don't know it. Of course, not everyone agrees with the Mine Wars Museum's interpretation of history, especially not John Belkey, that descendant of William Baldwin we heard from earlier. He has his own museum in Bluefield that includes a display of Baldwin Feltz ephemera that he's collected over the years. 
for a lot of our interview, Velke basically litigated specific events of the mine wars history, arguing that Baldwin Feltz wasn't involved in some specifically notorious incidents, or if they were, that that was an instance of a bad apple and not a mark on the whole organization. I'm also not going to suggest that Baldwin Feltz didn't sometimes hire men and those men did bad things, but that's the nature of any large organization. I've caught some of my own employees, people that work in my department stealing in the past, and I didn't hire them thinking they were gonna steal. Side note, Velke's devotion to his family legacy goes beyond an interest in history. He's actually about to retire from his own long career in private security as senior vice president of loss prevention for the retailer Total Wine and More. At one point during this interview, Velke took a work call and, on speakerphone, gave the okay for his colleague to call the cops on an employee who had apparently stolen $90 from a store. We're not going to play the tape because his coworker didn't know he was in the middle of an interview. Honestly, I think Velke's probably right that Baldwin Feltz agents weren't on the scene for every single harmful incident ever documented in the West Virginia Mine Wars. And I understand why he was hesitant to be interviewed and why he probably isn't going to like this episode very much. I keep thinking about the concern he expressed toward the end of our interview. My biggest concern is that I don't think that even if you were to take the union position, that the detective agency was uh, thwarting our efforts, made it more difficult for us to union organize and so on and so forth. Even if you took that position, which I'm not taking, but if if you did, that'd be kind of like saying the detective agency was a bunch of bad guys or bad people because of one snapshot in time. This agency lasted 50 years, okay? Well, what about all those other years? And what about all those other things that they did? And so I, I, I don't think it's fair or proper to define the agency by one segment or one time frame of a 50-year um, span. Does that make sense? History and its flashpoints tend to flatten the complexity of individuals into heroes and villains, remembered only for the best or worst things they ever did, rather than as flawed, complex human beings. But at the end of the day, the stuff that is documented about Baldwin Feltz, before and after the mine wars, and frankly, some of the stuff in Velke's own research doesn't make them look all that great. Like the selling hobos to a prison thing? I got that from Velke's book. But what's at stake isn't really whether Baldwin Feltz agents were bad people or good people, but how we look back on the harmful system they enabled, supported, and financially benefited from. A system that arguably outlived the agency. 
Some of Baldwin Feltz's contemporaries, like Pinkerton and the Burns Detective Agency, do still exist today, albeit both as subsidiaries of the security conglomerate Securitas AB. They've pivoted to emphasize security consulting and protecting corporate IP over union busting. Private union busting services do still exist in the United States and are arguably thriving today, though it's now more the domain of law firms and consultancies. In some ways, the Baldwin-Felt story is one of local legacies and family roots. Even today, descendants of key figures in the mine wars fight to keep that history alive and sometimes fight over what that history really is. But it's also a very American story, intertwined with a lot of the themes of American history that tend to get the short shrift, like the close ties between upholding capitalism and upholding white supremacy, the efforts to deliberately pit workers against each other using culture war bullshit, the ease with which the state will come to the aid of extractive industry while selling out the people actually doing the dirty work. This is how Chuck Keeney described the erasure of the West Virginia mine wars. It's a class struggle, first and foremost. And in the American pantheon, we don't like discussing class struggle. And we don't like discussing the pitfalls of capitalism. Well, the American pantheon might not like it, but here at Ripcorp, we can't really stop talking about the pitfalls of capitalism because, well, it keeps fucking up people's lives. Much like the 1918 flu pandemic contributed to miners' mobilization, COVID-19 has brought worker struggles to the fore in a wide range of professions, from factory and warehouse workers to graduate students and Starbucks baristas. And coal miners, still. Shout out to the Warrior Met miners in Alabama. Today's workers are met more with slick, why unions are bad infographics and all-hands meetings about preserving company culture rather than mercenaries with machine gun cars. But anti-labor rhetoric hasn't changed all that much since the days of the mine wars. Consider recent supply chain crises and labor shortages being blamed on people being lazy and ungrateful or simply not wanting to work, as opposed to recognizing that maybe making people put their lives on the line in a pandemic for shitty wages and no health care is the actual problem. That maybe getting back to work won't get the world back to normal. And maybe back to normal wasn't a great place to begin with. And labor history, in all of its messiness, is important to understanding where we're at. Not only because it reminds us how a lot of the crises today are actually very old, but because it's a reminder that people have always fought back. They don't always win. Again, in the West Virginia Mine Wars, the miners very decisively lost. But nothing in or about capitalism is actually inevitable. And history's gaps can also be just as illuminating. Bob Hutton, the historian studying Baldwin-Feltz, talked a little about this. I mean, you got to remember that this was an organization that operated for decades. Probably some of the worst damage that it ever did to humans uh, were in moments that we're probably unlikely to know much about. In their 50-year existence, the Baldwin-Feltz Detective Agency exercised tremendous power and authority in Appalachia. Whether you think they abuse that power or not partly comes down to the facts, but it also comes down to, as a song from a different coal miners uprising puts it, which side you're on.
thanks so much to Rosemary Foyer, John Velke, Bob Hutton, Kenzie Newwalker, and Chuck Keeney for speaking with us for this episode. Huge thanks to Dr. Rebecca Bailey. We weren't able to fit the tape with her in this episode, but her book, Made One Before the Massacre, was incredibly useful for putting this episode together. Also, thanks to Becky Kaufman at the Eastern Regional Coal Archives and Bobby Starnes and Kimberly McCoy at the Mind Wars Museum. Rip Corp was written and researched by me with research and fact-checking by Matt Giles. It was produced by Megal Gennardin and Mike Rignetta with music and sound design by Andrew Atkin and Michael Simonelli. Jason Oberholzer is our executive producer. Episode artwork is by Megan Mulholland and Beatrice Lozano. Rip Corp is a production of Charts and Leisure. Which side are you on? 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 Oh, workers, can you stand?